Well, it's an honor to be here this morning and to share the word of the Lord. Amen. Peter, James, and John was taken by Jesus up to a high mountain. They became sleepy, began to fade out, and suddenly they realized something was happening and Jesus was being transformed before them. They looked up and there was Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking. Peter began to get excited and wanted to do all sorts of things. Suddenly God interrupted him and said, Listen to my son. Moses disappeared. The law, the prophet disappeared. All that they'd known before that they depended on so much. And it said they only saw Jesus. And if we can do that this morning, Lord, help us to see you. God whispered these words to him, listen to my son. If we can hear the living word today, what he is speaking to us, our hearts will be made strong, our minds will be renewed, and his joy and his spirit will abide in our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, we need you. We need you more than anything, Lord. We need you desperately. We need you in our individual lives. We need you in our families. We need you in our nation, and we need you in the world, Lord, for you love the world so much you gave your only begotten Son. Thank you, Lord, for these people here today. Lord, may your words, we gather together to hear your words, to discover your ways and your will in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, turn today to Hebrews chapter 11. And then also, while you're looking there, go to Judges chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 11 and Judges chapter 6. And while you're looking there, a little story you might enjoy. A couple guys came up to Colorado to go elk hunting. And um, they hired a pilot to take them back to a far remote area he said, I'll be back in four days. Four days later, he showed back up, and there they were. Both of them had an elk. And he said, whoa, wait a minute. We can't take all of you, your gear, and the elk. It's going to be too heavy. They said, well, the pilot last year, we had two elk, and he, uh, he did it. And so he didn't want to be outdone. So he said, okay, we'll give it a try. So he took the plane as far as he could back, revved it up as hard as he could, they were just almost ready to clear the trees, and they hit the branches, and the plane flipped, and the plane crashed. So they all checked, and everybody was at least okay. They got out, and the one guy said, well, where are we? And the guy looked around and says, well, about the same place we were last year. <laughs> so, <laughs> about the same place. So let's look to Hebrews chapter 11. And we'll start right there. Now, faith or trust, faith or trust is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. The beginning of our faith begins at this point of belief 
that it was God that created the heavens and the earth. By faith, we have to start right there. It is God who created. There are many voices in the world that try to say other things, but right there is where we begin. God is the one who created this whole thing that we're involved in. And his word is what began the very substance of who we are and where we're going. And then it begins to go in by faith, Abel, on verse 4. By faith, Enoch, verse 5. By faith, Noah, verse 7. By faith, Abraham, verse 8. And by faith, unleavened, Sarah herself. And we see all these stories of what happened to these faithful ones, these heroes of the faith. And we see them, we ricochet off their little stories. We say, isn't that something how that happened and that happened? But in our hearts and minds, we need to go with them and be with Sarah while she cried night after night that the Lord would allow her to have a child. Because her testimony of faith didn't happen just in one little instant. Faith is this experience. Faith is a process. The acquisition of faith, the acquiring of faith, is not a momentary thing. It is an experiential relationship with God that sometimes takes time, and we wonder why our lives are going like they are. But if we'll see these things within the, uh, the view of faith, it will give us hope and help. And so on he goes, the Noah and we say, man, what faith Noah had. But in your mind, have you ever gone with Noah and worked on an ark for years and years and years, building, pounding, however he built the ark? God did all those things over a vast amount of time. But when he was done, Noah went and hung up his testimony upon the hall of fame. And we read about it here. And so the Hebrew scribe, presenting us these lessons, in verse 32, as he's pinning his way through, he takes a breath and questions, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to speak of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. In the prior verses, he has filled the grandstands with these heroes of faith, these headliners of the ancient believers. He introduces Abraham and Sarah, the comeback kids of the desert, representing those who bloom in the winter time of life, the fruitful after hours kind of folks. And our timing with faith sometimes, for some it seems too early. Zacharias and Elizabeth, when the Lord came and said, you're going to have a child, they said, no, it's too late. My wife's too old. The timing's off. The same angel went over and told Mary and Joseph. They said, it can't be. It's too early. It's before time. And in God's timing, it was the perfect time. Your moment where you are right now is the perfect time for this faith to be birthed in you, a new faith, a new hope, a new trust that you haven't experienced before. The fruitful, after-hours kind, they begin to search and to look. They were living in tents, but they were looking for a city whose builder, who had, or looking for a city with foundations. Living in a tent, but looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. They were looking for something more, something better. 
And because of their acquisition of this faith and hope, their names were mentioned in the grand scheme of things. And we say, I want to have faith like that. I want to be looking for something more for my family, more for our lives. He pictures Noah challenging us to build bigger and better than our storms, always ensuring that we are prepared for our family's future. All the work, all the toil, we must remind ourselves it's worth every bit of it. Your family needs safety. Your family needs to be saved. And the time that Noah built all that ark so many times, it, or Noah, that then he came to that realization that it is all worth it. And as for me and my house, he says, we're going to serve the Lord. He has Moses escort his mother onto the field. Honoring her, she describes the sense or the scene of her gently pushing her precious newborn in a reed basket into uncertain waters, but into the hands of a mighty God, revealing a mother who saw her God bigger than the angry river, the dangerous river. Her story encourages us to do all that we can and release our children by faith into the current of God's divine will and plan. Moses testifies that choices determine your destiny. And he paints the picture of the crossing of the Red Sea, reminding us that you can find freedom from your past by allowing God to drown your enemy and end the cruel domination. A beautiful picture of baptism. We go into the waters as a slave, and we come out as son. What a beautiful picture. These mighty men of faith, this is what they did. This is what they gave to us. These are the stories they told. The scribe relates Enoch's story. It's simple, but it's profound. He walked with God. Faith is simple. We, can't, we don't need to complicate it. Faith is walking with God. He pleased God and declares here at this point, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. So this desire must be birthed within us. We must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 1132 is where we collide with this unsung song, the untold story. The scribe says, Time would fill us to tell how God took this one named Gideon, this one so much like us, so lacking in trust, so lacking in confidence, so destitute of victory, but so ripe with purpose and destiny. And today we cry out, oh, Gideon, stand up and testify. This is our day to hear your story. Tell us a story and witness of your encounter with faith and how it reformed your destiny, how it reformed your family, how it reformed and even beyond the nation. Sing to us your song of reformation and teach us, train us to run with these mighty in faith. And then Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 It says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. The acquisition of faith is demonstrated vividly in Gideon's story. 
The Bible tells us to buy the truth and then don't sell it. We need to get a grasp of what Gideon's life, how he was transformed, what made his life change from what he was to what he became. Faith is birthed in our hearts by process. It's not given to you by hereditary means. It is not given to you just as a gift. But faith happens as we are transformed by experience, by life, by happenings. We want the promise, but we loathe the process. We say, Lord, why are things so difficult? Why has my life hit this wall? And almost every person that they went through, through the figures of faith, we see them having to go through painful times. Change does not come without pain. Change does not come without pain. Every one of those stories, if you read through them, you read between the lines, you put yourself in their places, you find struggles, you find lonely nights, you find those that are out there doing something that they don't even understand what they're doing. You look at Noah's life, build an ark, and you know, it's like, what is an ark? Build it. And the, his family watching him, what are we doing? I don't know, it didn't take months to build. It took years to build under the ridicule of their neighbors and their friends. And you know the pressure that comes from when your friends and your kids are being said things at school and all the rest. And you wonder, Lord, did we really hear your voice? But Noah had such a deep trust, a deep faith that he followed through. And in the end... His family was saved. So we want to realize that the faith that we have and that comes, you've got to get your own. You can't depend on your family. You may have had a faithful grandparent, but that does not mean that you have faith. Your parents might have trained you, but that does not mean that you have the faith that you need. You've got to get your own faith today. You've got to get your own faith. Let's look at Judges chapter 6 and verse 1. This is where Gideon's story happens. Judges chapter 6. We're just going to be bouncing through a couple of scriptures there, watching his life and watching how God built faith in our friend Gideon. says, verse 1, The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because the Midianites, the children of Israel, made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up also. Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number. The enemy comes in from the very beginning and uses the art of intimidation. First off, he says, the people came in. The camels came in, all these things, without number. The enemy always exaggerates his strength and his power. They were numbered. 
we'll find out in a little bit how many people did come in, but they were numbered. It wasn't something that couldn't be imagined, couldn't be counted, but the enemy comes into your life and makes you feel like this faith challenge that we have, this seeking after faith is beyond and too big for you, too difficult for you. It's not for you when all the time that's just a lie of the enemy. Then he would come in and plan their plundering to coincide with the harvest time. They came in to kill, steal, and destroy. And that sounds exactly like the day that we live in. The enemy comes in to rob and to take you from the place that God has provided, the peace that he has determined that is for your life. And he comes in just at the harvest time. And around us, we're looking at people who are sick and tired of just when they get to a certain point in life, it seems like something is taken away. That's a trick of the enemy. And God is saying, if you live by faith, and we find Gideon looking suddenly at where he was and what was happening and saying, it's enough. I'm tired of going to the caves. I'm tired of going to the dens. I have a home. I have a family. I have a place that God has provided. Why should I keep having to run? And we find him in Judges 6 and 11. And it says there, we, the angel Lord came and sat under the timber tree, which was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Azarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress. That's where we find ourselves today as threshing wheat in a winepress. They don't go together. It speaks of desperation. When you have wheat, you use the threshing floor. And there was a threshing floor close by. But because of what the enemy had done, he was trying to hide and just to survive. God does not want you. God does not plan for you just to survive. He wants you to thrive and to be doing what you need to be doing. And threshing wheat in a, in a wine press is like trying to hang wallpaper with one hand tied behind your back. Can it be done? Yes, it can, but it's so difficult. You're not even half as effective. And the enemy tries to keep you threshing wheat in a wine press. And the Lord is saying, uh-uh. And what happens here, in order to hide from many nights, and it says, verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Kind of took Gideon's breath. What do you mean, a mighty man of valor? Here I am hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat just so I can get my family some food. You've got to realize that God buys into you way before you buy into yourself. He sees your future, He sees your destiny, and God sees in you and says, You mighty man of valor. And that was the furthest thing from Gideon's mind. He was far from it. He began to make excuses. I'm the, from the weakest clan. I'm the youngest of my father's family. But the excuses were not big enough. He said, you're going to deliver this people because they were impoverished. They were impoverished physically, in all different ways. But the enemy, by his impish, terrible ways that he treats us, will rob you of your joy, 
will rob you of your peace. You'll be running to the caves. You'll be running to the dens when you need to be in the strong, secure place of your home. And today, that's the Spirit of God speaking to somebody today saying, it's time to come home. Come out of the caves. Get out of the wine press and get back to what you need to be doing, being effective, being powerful, helping your life to thrive and you to become what you were intended and meant to be. It's time to take it back. Take back your future. Take back your destiny. Doing what's right, but we're not effective and we're partially productive. And the Lord says it's time to come out of there and grab a hold of it, grasp a hold of this thing called faith. We hate to be desperate, but if it wasn't for your desperation, you wouldn't seek God. If it wasn't for your desperation, so some today is here sitting saying, Why in the world is life treating me like this? God said, I allowed it so you would get desperate enough so that you would seek me. That you would seek my faith, my face, that you would seek the hope and the help that he has promised. When we talk about desperation, we look at the woman who had an issue of blood, and believe me, everybody in life has issues. Nobody gets by without issues. And these issues that we have, these things that we struggle again, are like the touchstone, the old touchstone. It was like a flint rock, and they would take, and they would rub the gold or the silver on this, and they could tell if the gold was true, if it was pure, how good was the gold? And these issues that we have are that flintstone that rub us against that difficult time. And God is checking out your faith and saying, is it real? Is it true? Is your faith really of substance? And we say, why are these issues here? The Lord allows you to become desperate enough. She came and there was the throng around Jesus. They were moving along. And she began to push her way through. And there was hundreds of reasons why she shouldn't get there. But she told herself, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, just get there close enough to touch him, I might be made well because the enemy had robbed her of everything. Her husband and her had poured all they could into getting well, and she was not. We can be surrounded by people but never being touched. And I pray today that you feel the presence of God here. If nothing else, if you feel his presence, if you know he's right there, if you just feel like you can touch and have something. And when she got up there, she pushed her way through finally. And when she touched his garment, Jesus stopped and said, wait. Somebody touched me. And the disciples said, what do you mean, Lord, there's... All these people, there's a throng. No, he said, somebody touched me. Somebody touched me. It was different. Today, our hearts are hungry for God. Hungry for God, for that touch. We need to know that we have a Savior who is looking. He loves to be touched. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. He's not too busy. He's not too preoccupied. But his spirit is saying, somebody touched me today. Somebody needed something. 
she was there shaking, and finally she realized, said, it's me. But when I touched you, something happened in my body, and I feel I'm already made whole. I mean, when you get a hold of this faith thing, the reality, the trust, you know you've got a hold of something real. It doesn't take long for you to know that I have touched and been made well, made whole. Judges 6 and 12, it says, You mighty man of valor, God buys, as we said, into your destiny. And I want to be called by his name. He called Peter Rock. He saw in Peter something that wasn't there when he met him. He says, from now on, you're going to be called Cephas or a stone, a rock. Maybe today he's called you by a new name that you're not familiar with. You will be challenged in your identity. Who are you in Christ? Who are you really? Are you the real thing? Are you who God says you are? You're going to be challenged by these things. Jesus was baptized, and the voice came from heaven, this is my son, and who am I well pleased? Then he was led to be tempted. And what was he tempted? The enemy came up and said, if you are the son of God, he challenged Christ's identity just immediately. So many of you who are new to faith, the enemy is going to come and say, is what you're challenging or what you're following after, is it real? Is it right? Who are you? Are you being just a fake? Look what you were before. Many of us are trying to get rid of the past behind us. And the enemy comes in and whispers those things that happened to you, the things that you said before, the things that you've done before. But I want to be called by his name, what he called you. He called me mighty man of valor. He calls you princess. He calls you friend. You need to know the names that God calls you. I am who I am because the great I am says I am. We need to have that in our hearts and our minds. I am who I am because the great I am says I am. Hallelujah. You need to speak those things over your life and over your family. In Judges chapter 6 and 25, or, yes, 25. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of the seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. He was led from the threshing floor given this great challenge that he moved in and the Lord came to him and said, the first thing you need to do is tear down the old altar and build a new altar. And then take the chips from the old idol that was there, the wood, and it will become the fuel for your worship and your praise. Some of the things that happened so ugly in your life before you bring him before the Lord here, and all of a sudden, it goes up in smoke. The guilt goes up in smoke. The depression goes up in smoke. You take the things that were so ugly and so 
difficult in your life, and you think, the enemy really ruined my life. No, the Lord says, take those things, and you're going to build a new altar. There's going to be a new altar, and you're going to take what happened in your life before, and it is going to be used for good. That person beside you today that you thought they were a little bit rambunctious, they don't need to be so physical when they worship. You don't know, maybe they were just coming and bringing a piece of the old guilt that they had before. God delivered them. And they're just saying, it's going up in smoke. It's gone. There's a new altar. There's a new worship. There's a new dedication. There's a new giving myself to God that was not there before. There is a fresh faith. There's fresh faith. And it talked about Abraham, and it doesn't matter if you're just coming to the Lord or you've been with the Lord for years and years. There can come upon you a fresh faith, and you can build a new altar even today. It says that when Noah got off the ark, he built a new altar. And so whatever your experience has been recently, when you get off of that experience, say, thank you, Lord. I'm going to build a new altar, and the things that happened to me in the past, I'm going to chop them up into pieces, throw them on this new one, and there he was, just worshiping and praising God with the fire being given by the nasty things that had happened before him. Judges 6.29 says that the men of the city, they came out and they saw that this thing had been torn down, the wooden image and all that. So they said to one another, who has done this thing? One of the first things that's going to happen when difficult times come your way, you begin to look for blame. Who's to blame? Who's to blame? Adam and Eve, God looked at him in the garden and said, you know, explain what happened here. And Eve said, the devil made me do it. Adam said, God, it was you that gave me this wife. One blamed the devil, one blamed God, and both of them had apple juice dripping down their chin. They were the ones that did it. But blame presses the need for you to change yourself. It's somebody else. So the first thing it is, say, Lord, the situation that I'm going through, what can I learn? What can I learn from this situation? Don't be blaming someone else. Blame distracts from what God is doing. The family went on a cruise, and the kids were up playing on the upper deck by the swimming pool, and their parents were over the side watching, and the wind blew the ball, and it went over the little railing they had, and the little girl crawled through over the railing, and there was water she didn't see. She slipped and went over. Her mother screamed. They all come running to the side, and they threw off some those little rings, and you know she was having a hard time swimming, and her mother screamed, somebody help. 71-year-old guy suddenly went over the side, swam, grabbed one of the rings, swam back to her until they got a little rescue vessel out there and back. So they had a great banquet that night, and the captain got up and eloquently said some things about what had happened, and and they gave the microphone to the parents, and they they just weeping and just so thankful. They asked the gentleman, the 71-year-old gentleman, if he'd like to say something. And he said, the 
first thing I'd like to know is who pushed me. <laughs> All the good, he missed the lesson, he missed the, the stuff. He was just concerned about who pushed me. And in life, sometimes if you blame others and blame this and blame that, we have a culture of blame. And we don't focus on what God is really trying to do for us. Gideon said, my clan's the weakest. I'm the least in my father's house. Then in verse 32, therefore on that day, it, this was Gideon's father, therefore on that day he called him Jerubel, saying, let Bel plead against him because he has torn down his altar. His dad gave him a new name. Today, your circumstances are such, you come out the other side, our prayer and our cry is, Lord, I want my name back. I want the name that you called me, you mighty man of valor. His father had nicknamed him Jerubel. Let Bell plead for himself. There are times when others place names on you because of what you've done or the way you've acted, and they impress upon you and try to form you into, they call you whatever name it is. And our prayer today is, God, I want my name back. There are times when it comes the other way. When we name ourselves, you're ashamed of what you've done, and you call yourself loser. You call yourself a thief. You call yourself whatever it is. Naomi in the Old Testament and Ruth, the book of Ruth, her and her husband and her family, because of the drought and the famine, went to another country. While she was there, her husband died and her boys died. She came back. They were from Bethlehem. The people were all excited. The women went running out. Naomi's back. Naomi means pleasant or sweetie. She says, don't call me sweetie anymore. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She named herself bitter after what it, the circumstances of her life had taken her through. God is saying today, I'm going to give you your name back. You're going to be Naomi again. Naomi's back in Bethlehem. And we know the story of how Boaz took married, their son was born, and he became the grandfather of King David. What God can do with our nasty circumstances, we're calling ourselves Mara, we're bitter, we're angry, it's bad. God says, you're still my man of valor, you're still my princess, you're the one I want. Do not let your past define your future. Not the mistakes, not the sloppy start, not the heavy shadow of a dark incident, but a defining decision today followed by the supporting decisions of your tomorrow. That will determine your future. 32,000 came when Gideon put out the word. 32,000 people came. And they were going to battle into their country, 135,000 
135,000 of the enemy had come in. When they put out the call, 32,000 came up to battle. We're going to show you a picture here of what 135,000 people looks like. There was a consideration, well, maybe, you know, use the Denver Bronco, the, the stadium there. That only holds 78,000, I believe it is. The football field would have to be 170 yards long. So this year at the Indianapolis 500, there was 135,000 people. And these pictures kind of give you an idea of what 135,000, plus all their camels, plus all the things that they brought in. And that's what they were facing. 32,000 came in. Gideon said, he was instructed by the Lord to tell the men, if you're afraid, go home. 22,000 guys turned around and walked away. It's, he's left with 10,000 men. Then Jesus, or God told him to go take a drink at the stream. And out of that 10,000, 9,700 were chosen to go home, and it left 300 men. Because God kept saying, with 32,000, you're going to say that you did it. With 10,000, you're going to say that you did it. With 300, you're going to say, I did it. <laughs> and that's why our lives are like they are sometimes. God needs us to know it's him that is giving us the faith that we need. It's you, God. It's you. So the first lesson that we're told is to man up. Man up is joining forces with God, allowing his character, his authority, and his power to release in you resources beyond your own capability. Manning up is counting the cost. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me, Jesus prayed. Nevertheless, when you count the cost, you say nevertheless. If it's difficult and you're asked to give something, you say nevertheless, I'll always choose the greater way. If you're asked to do something hard, you'll say nevertheless. It's always going to be the better part. Manning up is doing the right thing. Every decision is not a game changer, but when summed up, they define who we are. Fear and courage. We've got to go grab hopelessness by the cheeks and look it in the eyes and say, we are simply not meant to be together. Grasp the hand of courage and walk away. Ambrose Redmoon says, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than fear. These men came together and they needed to realize that the cause was greater than the fear that they thought, knew was out there. All the armies that were facing them, 22,000 left immediately because they could not understand that the cause was greater than the fear they had. John Wayne said, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Mark Twain said, courage is resistance to fear. Mastery of fear, not absence of fear. Except a creature be a part coward, it is not a compliment to say it is brave. We need to get the vision of victory. If you are afraid, go down and listen. God told Gideon. Gideon, he said, went down. Even Gideon was afraid. It wasn't they had an absence of fear. But to man up, you need to know how to handle your fear. You will have fear. Your circumstances will make you afraid. 
But it didn't matter if Gideon saw the fleeces, the dry one, the dewy one. God spoke to him, but it wasn't until his intimidation was finally broken when he heard the enemy say, I'm afraid of Gideon. Gideon went back and told us 300, the Lord has given us this army. Sometimes you need to hear that the enemy is afraid of you. The enemy is afraid of you. The enemy is afraid of you. You need to walk through this week knowing the enemy is afraid of you. He's intimidated you. He's made you feel like he's great, big, and mammoth, and going to do you in. But the Word of God says, you need to understand, the enemy is afraid of you. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We've talked about the touchstone, but that's exactly what happened. We saw the example of Jesus when he was in the boat. He said, where's your faith? He had allowed the storm to wear them down. The waves intimidated them. And then he says, where's your faith? And you've got to locate your faith before you can place it over your fears. Lord, help us to take our faith this week and subdue and suffocate the fears that come up in our lives. Verse 8 and 4. Try to wrap up quickly here. When Gideon came to the Jordan, and he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. Maybe that's where the Lord is finding you today, exhausted, but still in pursuit. What had happened, Gideon took the 300 men. They took the lantern, the lamps with the candle inside and the trumpets. They blew all around that encampment of the enemy, that 135,000. And it was at nighttime. The Lord had given them instruction on what to do. When the trumpets blared out and they broke the pitchers, the enemy began to be afraid. And they took their swords and shot each other. They killed each other. And out of that group of 135,000, 120,000 killed themselves. God did the great work. The great work is what God did. But 15,000 ran, and amongst them was two kings. And so they began to pursue them for however long it was. It was miles, like something like 60 miles they pursued them. They finally caught this up to them, and the, the... time they got there they were exhausted but still in pursuit and you've got to realize you may be tired you may be exhausted but God says keep on going the second battle is ours God was still with them and delivered them victoriously but 15,000 had gotten away amongst them two kings and the 300 attacked them and it said they routed the whole army what a beautiful we always hear the first battle which is what God did. But he came a second time on the second battle and helped him win again. You may be weary, but you can say to yourself, I'm still here today. I may be wore down, but I'm still here. Do not settle for a half a victory. Do not settle for a partial victory. God wants to give you the complete victory today. Hallelujah. The one king, his name was Zeba, which means victim. 
These are the things that dominate your life, the thoughts that persuade, the impulses that dictate. Ziba, the victim, you've got to realize that no longer are you a victim in life. The Lord has called you to be a victor. And they could have let the army go, the 15,000, say, well, look what God did. That was really quite easy. But he says, no, you're going to pursue them, and you've got to destroy the enemy completely. You've got to destroy him completely. And one of those things that will rob you, the kings that will come back, because they will. They'll get an army, and they'll come back. If you still see yourself as a victim, if you feel yourself as a victim, it will take away the faith, the authority, and the power that God has designed for your heart and life. You've got to realize, no longer am I a victim. Zalmunna means protection refused, or it means pride, the arrogance of those who think they can thrive without God in their life. We are to take, the Bible says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He caught up with those kings. So, verse 18. Well, let's, verse 19. And he said to his son, Jether, rise and kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. Nobody else can win your battle for you don't nobody else can win your faith battle and then the, it, one of the kings looked at him and said so Ziba and Zalmunna said rise yourself and kill us for as a man is so is his strength that's a strange thing to be coming from the enemy but that's what God is saying to you today as a man is so is his strength Rise up and destroy these things. We're not battling flesh and blood anymore, but we battle against principalities and powers and spiritual forces in high places. You need to take the word of the Lord, the, the sword of the Lord, and quote the scriptures and pierce to death those things in your life that have dominated, that have come back, whether it's pride, whether it's arrogance, whether it's the... the victim that you feel that you are God does not want you to live life as a victim pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall better to be humble be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud and with that he stabbed the kings and won the great victory Chris didn't show up for work for a while we all wondered where he was Two weeks later, he came, said he was out by his place and found a rattlesnake. He said, I got a stick. I had a fork in it, and I pinched behind the head, got it, and took it over to my pickup, have a big barrel, and he said, I'm going to take it up to the mountains and set it free again. I thought, Chris, kill the snake. Just kill the snake. He said, I took it and walked it over there. And he said, I thought it was maybe sick or injured or something. He said, it was just not moving hardly. 
Chris, kill the snake. He said, I walked over to the barrel, and he said, I wasn't thinking. He says, I let go of the head first, dropped the barrel, and he said, in that moment, that snake came up and hit him on the hand. They lived throughout in the country. By the time he got, in there, got him into the hospital, he was in bad shape, swollen up. So those days later, they finally, he was in the hospital just a couple of days, but you know how it is, what they charge you when you go in like that. They'd been saving up for a new house. They had their down payment. They'd been renting all this time. They didn't have insurance. So all the money they had for their down payment, they had to pay for the doctor bill. The Lord is telling you today, kill that snake in your life. That thing that why were you even doing that? You don't just kill the snake. Kill the pride. If you don't kill the pride, it will kill you. Each, he looked at Gideon, looked at Zeba and Zalmunna before he killed them. And he said, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, as you are, so were they. They each one resembled the son of a king. Those two kings had come in and killed all of his brothers. He had brothers, and they had come in, and he said each one of them looked like the son of a king. Think of the people in your life who either died of snake bites, not literal ones, but I'm talking about these things in life that come in, the pride, the lust, all these things of, that happen in their lives. You wish you'd go back to them and they just, just kill the snake, Chris. It's not worth it to put up with this kind of stuff. Don't leave that little army going out. Destroy the temptation that keeps coming back to you. Overcome that. He said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. And as the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. We've got to destroy these things. I've got too many friends that look like the son of a king, but their hopes, their dreams, their visions, their ministries were destroyed because they didn't take care and kill the snake when it was time. Jesus said, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Jesus gives that to you. I give you the authority and the power. Overcome this. Take the sword and place it deep into the heart of your enemy. The art of winning the battle. David took Goliath down with a sling and killed him. But it said he, Gideon then went and took Goliath's sword, cut off his head, and killed him again. Sometimes there's some things in life you just have to kill twice. You don't want to wake up and turn around. There's a nine-foot, ugly-looking guy behind you with a stone in his forehead. Take the head off. Finish the job. Go the complete way. Derek Redmond in 1992, Summer Olympics. He was expected to medal. The race began. He took off. He was about 100 meters into the race. 
doing well and all of a sudden he heard a snap he said it felt like somebody had pierced the back of his leg with a knife he had torn a hamstring down onto the track he went he said he sat there for just a few seconds knowing that pain or knowing that he had not going to be able to win the race and he said I remembered where I was so I got up and I said I've got to finish my race I've got to finish the race so down the track he began to hobble wobble make his way in partway down a guy straddled over some fences pushed his way by some security a guy ran out beside him and put his arm there to help him out it was his father He asked him a couple questions. His dad said, well, let's do this together then. And that's what the Lord is saying to you today. Let's finish this thing together. The race is not to the swift, but to those who persevere. And since all, therefore, verse 12, 1 in Hebrew says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 65,000 people stood to their feet, clapped as he crossed over the line, hobbling, making it, but he made it all the way. It says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. <laughs> Hallelujah. He's right beside you today. There's the Apostle Paul with his big, large, number one foam finger over there saying, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal. There's the Peter, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus, of Jesus Christ, rise up. Let's do that today. Rise up. He's saying you need to finish your race. You need to make it all the way. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he neither, neither faints, he doesn't quit, nor is weary. He doesn't give up. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait upon the Lord... Let's all stand together. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. We're going to wait in hope. We're going to wait in faith. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. You're not going to give up. They shall walk and not faint. You're not going to quit because the Heavenly Father is beside you saying, we're going to finish this thing together. Hallelujah. We're going to finish it together. Need you know